Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. When you think about the early decades of Zionism and the founding of the modern state of Israel, certain iconic places may come to mind. The ancient and modern sections of Jerusalem, the cosmopolitan streets of Tel Aviv, the agricultural, self-sustaining socialism of the kibbutz. But one kind of place probably doesn't come up, the Mosheva. In fact, unless you really know your Zionist history, the term Mosheva may not even ring a bell. So what is a Mosheva? European Jewish agricultural colonies founded in Palestine in the late 19th century and which retroactively after World War I are labeled the first Aliyah or the first wave of Zionist settlement. That's Leora Halpern, an assistant professor of history and Jewish studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and the endowed professor of Israel-Palestine studies there and a current fellow at the Frankel Center. She says that Moshe votes such as Rishon LeZion, Petach Tikva, and others over time became largely overshadowed by the ideologies and politics of the second wave of Zionist settlers who went on to found the first collective farms, or kibbutzim, around the time of the First World War and the second decade of the 20th century. Dominant ideological current in Zionism around World War One was kind of defined itself as secularized, socialist inclined, uh, economically committed to building a Jewish only economy on the basis of what they called Hebrew labor. And proponents of that kind of ideology were very vocal. They had newspapers and publications. They totally dominated the writing of history. And this this later wave, this wave of the early 20th century often started out as workers in the Moshavot, which already existed when they arrived, but they they left and started to view their former employers as bourgeois, as profit-motivated, as not sufficiently committed to a national goal of employing only Jewish workers. They saw them as compromised by hiring cheaper Arab workers rather than Jews, and also often mocked them for being religious and being Yiddish-speaking rather than Hebrew-speaking. And so when these very vocal and ideologically committed Zionists began writing and telling their stories, the Moshevot that came before them and defined the first wave of Aliyah, or immigration, to Palestine were mostly left out. Halpern's current research focuses on recovering and examining these muted histories. She was first drawn to the project, she says, for personal reasons. I was researching uh, actually my family history, uh, the story of my great-grandfather, one great-grandfather who was born in Ottoman Palestine in 1890. And I learned later that though he left for the U.S., he had a few siblings who stayed. And one of those siblings lived in Rishon LeZion, which was one of these uh, agricultural colonies. And I got sucked into this fascinating story of the murder of her husband, in 1902 and the aftermath of that murder and the way that that story got told over time. So it was actually through that family connection and that single story that I started becoming interested in those places and that period and the way that that memory is, is, is created. Halpern has spent a lot of time in small, dusty archives, 
piecing together how the Moshe vote and the people who've lived there and who still live there tell their stories. For example, they often held anniversary celebrations on every 10-year or even sometimes five-year anniversaries of their founding. They commemorated some of the early casualties, folks who had died young, uh, but they also commemorated people, and these folks were all men, who they constructed as national heroes, who they often presented as folks who had the special ability to navigate the surroundings, which were overwhelmingly Palestinian Arab surroundings, often by their knowledge of Arabic. Halpern also explores how the stories Moshevot tell about themselves are promoted beyond the Moshevot themselves and throughout the rest of Israel. In Tel Aviv, for example, uh, in some of the communities founded later on. So I consider some interesting examples where school children from all sorts of backgrounds would come visit the old guard of, of the Moshevot, the men who often were guards or defenders back in their youth, who in their 80s or 90s were greeting school groups and telling them stories about the past. I look at some radio programs that were produced uh, in which some of these elders told their stories. Um, I look at some uh, national celebrations, for example, the holiday of Purim and the Purim parade in which actors and figures from the Moshevot marched or, or participated in some way. Halpern has found that the stories the Moshevot she studies tell about their relations with their Arab-Palestinian neighbors and employees play an important role in the Moshevot self-image. They presented the economic relations between these Jewish bosses and these low-paid Arab workers not as the exploitative relationships that in many ways they were and that they were criticized as being, but they talked about those relations actually as a mechanism for building good relations, that they were giving jobs to locals, that they were introducing important modern farming techniques. So in this way, they were presenting themselves not only as the founders who deserved recognition and respect simply by being first or quote-unquote first, but also that they were guardians of a kind of model of, of coexistence based on their capitalist methods and their profit motive. Halperin also explores how the Moshe Vote's self-styled histories deal with the surrounding Palestinian villages that existed before 1948. Now, in kind of the, the standard smooth version of the collective story, these villages are often left out or they're on the margins. And not only that, but in 1948, during the 1948 war, almost all of those villages, especially in the Tel Aviv Jaffa region, were actually uh, destroyed and physically erased from the map. So it makes it seem as though the Moshevot exist in a wholly Jewish context. So part of reconstructing collective memory in the Moshevot helps reveal these additional parts of the landscape, literally the landscape, and parts of the context that are uh, suppressed and, and, and the violence that's often contained in that, in that process of, of suppression. Now, to be clear, Halpern's goal is not to judge the constructed histories of the Moshe vote as being any more or less honest or self-serving than any other history. Instead, her purpose is to recognize Moshe vote as places with distinct histories in order to better understand the motivations and desires of the people who founded them and the people who still live in Moshe vote today. And although the various Moshe vote have distinct histories— in general, Halpern says, they tend to present themselves as representing the Israeli-Jewish mainstream, with diverse populations, including religious and secular Jews, Jews whose ancestors came from Europe, and those who came from Arab countries. And in contrast to the ideological socialist legacy of the kibbutz and other politically conspicuous groups, 
Mosheville project what Halpern calls a politics of apoliticism. The politics of those who say that they are being reasonable, uh, that they're being pragmatic in their response to political or economic conditions, as opposed to those who they perceive as being activists or ideologues. And there are those who kind of build up their own importance in saying that this kind of pragmatic approach is indeed the best way forward. That, that right There are those who think that activism is the way forward, right? That's what activism is. And then there are those who respond to them not with an alternative activism, but by saying that a kind of middle-of-the-road pragmatism is actually the best way forward nationally. And the components of that uh, they present as effectively neutral. But, of course, it's not really neutral. In fact, claiming to be neutral is itself a political position have a politics of their own, that they're based on political assumptions, um, and that we can understand those assumptions. And by understanding that kind of hidden politics, we can understand a very, very important um, segment of society. The larger point of her research, Halpern says, is that to get a truly complete picture of the story of the modern state of Israel and of Zionism, you have to acknowledge that all places have histories and that those histories are worth considering in detail. What I want listeners to know is that these are places with very fascinating histories, and histories that, for a variety of reasons, haven't really been thought about sufficiently. Places that are right at the heart of understanding the history of Palestine and then Israel, and that those stories are also the stories about the way that that national memory is made. Um, And that when we study the history of Zionism as a political movement, thinking about it not only as a history of things that happened, but a history of people making sense of their own past, we can get a deeper and richer understanding of the way that that national identity actually works in practice. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.